I started coming to Pain Week in 2009 and remember being in the audience and saying, man, one day I want to be one of those people talking up there about what I can do and what I can offer in the field of pain medicine. And um, I'm happy to be here today and I'm a little overwhelmed seeing everybody here. So um, today I thought what would be very helpful and from the looks of things you think it, was it would be helpful as well is to talk about the gentle art of saying no. Uh, when working with patients with chronic pain. But before I do that, I have to go over a couple of things. I have nothing to disclose. However, I have been working in the field of psychology and in pain medicine for the last eight years at the VA. However, I am not representing the VA, nor am I an agent of the VA. I am only speaking through my experience and what I have learned throughout the years in working in pain medicine. That having been said, we're going to go over a couple of things today. First, we're going to describe the patient-provider chair responsibility while prescribing pain medications. We're going to explain the model of collaborative care and the challenges uh, in setting patient boundaries. I'm going to explain the steps of resolution. And then also we're going to discuss a plan on setting boundaries in a couple of patient cases. So early on in pain medicine, uh, when I started working in this field, I learned that in 1961, a group of countries got together and had a single conference on the use of narcotic drugs. And they, remember, this is 1961. And there were two things that came out of that conference. The first thing that came was that pain management was deemed a human right. Everybody had a right to pain management. And the second thing was they encouraged different countries to begin using narcotic drugs in the, in the treatment of pain management. Well, what unfortunately happened is that patients who suffer from chronic pain heard about this, and they thought they were entitled to opioids, right? And then us as providers, we started feeling a little bit of pressure, right? And then this has reinforced patients' beliefs and their reliance on medication. Now, I really like this slide because, whoops, because it shows the positive and negative reinforcement and then positive and negative uh, punishment. And this is kind of what it looks like when we tell a patient we're not going to prescribe medications, right? <laughs> but this is where we're going to talk about today, is how we can work in this area right here, is to take off the uncomfortable symptoms and uncomfortable concerns that we have and provide a more positive experience that's reinforcing to our patients. So what we know about opioid medications is that there are risks involved. So we know that opioids cause constipation. We know that there's an addiction potential to these medications. And because of that, because we prescribed medications for so long and so much, we saw a dramatic rise in opioid misuse and deaths, um, and even some high-profile individuals. So we all heard about Prince. Um, a lot of people know about Heath Ledger, right, the actor. What about Chris Farley? Chris Farley died of an overdose of narcotic medications. Brittany Murphy, another person who's died, right? So there's been a lot. Um, and because there's been a lot of high-profile deaths, we, the news has gotten hold of this information, and it's something that we see on TV pretty much on a regular basis. Now, the CDC identified this as being a pan, an epidemic a couple of years ago, but it wasn't until March of this year that they finally realized, uh, uh, released uh, some new guidelines. So why are patients deemed difficult? There's several different reasons, right? One might be 
that these patients have been ignored or they've mis been mistreated in the past, right? There might be some personality conflicts. I know I went to one of the talks earlier today and they were talking about patients with different personality disorders coming in and how to deal with them. Social and financial problems. A lot of these patients come in not feeling a lot of trust with providers or the system of, in which they're getting their health care. Um, there are cultural differences. There are language barriers, right? Some patients come in with cognitive impairment, severe mental health, and addiction concerns that aren't being addressed. Secondary gain, I know, is something that's going to be talked about later this week. I'm very excited to go to that talk. Um, there might be some system concerns. We kind of forget that in our office, when the patient comes to see us, there have been a lot of things that have occurred before they've gotten to you, right? So in the population that I work with, they tend to be a minority and low SES population, and so a lot of them use the public transit system. It's not reliable, right? They're constantly late because of the system. Uh, they come in, you know, running around, and these are patients who have pain trying to find my office. Then if they don't find my office, they may have a positive or negative interaction with somebody, another patient, or another provider. And then they finally get to me, right? And then sometimes I wonder, why are they so angry? I didn't do anything yet, right? <laughs> they may be having a negative drug interaction. So these are all different reasons why patients might be deemed difficult. What we have to remember, though, is that these are not difficult patients. They're just patients that have difficulties. Now, we're talking about what patients bring in, but we often forget about what we as providers bring into that uh, interaction with the patient. So sometimes we use jargon or we avoid situations or discussions. So when I first started off a long time ago, 20 years ago, I was working in a family medicine primary care uh, clinic and I was working with a provider who refused to talk to any of her patients about their sexual health. And that's actually where I began my work was in sexual health. And so I worked with her very closely and started talking to her patients about sexual health. Um, and what we found was that we had a young gentleman from a small community come in who was complaining of sexual health. Um, and she didn't want to go in there. She didn't want to talk to him. And so I went in there and I talked to him and found out what the problem was. She came in there with me. And he had... Uh, his, he had foreskin that had been fused to the head of his penis. And no one had ever talked to him about cleanliness or hygiene. No one had ever talked to him about the need to, you know, be able uh, to have sex, how they need to, to you know, change or, or do things together. And the provider would never even have examined him had an eye not talked to her about the need to examine him in this case. He had surgery. He's fine. I'm sure he's really happy. Um, so good, good things come. But again, we avoid to talk about certain topics, and, and um, that can be a failure of ours. We may give too much information or not enough, um, or we assume the patient is understanding. You know, the patient's doing this, right? This means they understand or agree. No. This, must, this, this could be like hurry up, right? Um, Patients may be afraid to assert themselves. You know, a lot of patients come in believing that as providers, we know of everything there is to know about medicine and we, should, we know what's best or we know um, what's happened in their case and that's not necessarily the case. We make jokes or we make jokes with other providers close by where sometimes patients can overhear and maybe take that in a negative way. And we, we don't really pay attention to how that might impact them and their experience. 
we, ex we fail to explain sometimes that, you know, you may be working at a teaching facility, so, um, you know, if someone comes in, a resident or a fellow meets with the patient and doesn't explain that they're a resident and fellow that's being over-supervised uh, over by an attending, that's important information that the patient should know. Um, and sometimes they get upset because every time they come in, there's a different fellow or resident. Um, and then providers come to me all the time and they say they don't want to be a police officer. They didn't do this to be a police officer or they didn't do this to be a judge or a deal maker. They went to medicine to practice medicine, right? So there's some expectations. When the patient comes into the room or when, yeah, when the patient comes into the room, we are expecting a couple of things. The first thing we're expecting is that they're going to be open, that they're going to be honest. They're going to tell us the truth. They're going to obey us, right? They're going to be motivated to get better. They want to get better. That's what they're there for. They're going to be very gracious and, and show their gratitude, and they're going to have a, a pleasure in feeling any improvement. And then they have expectations of us, right? They want us to be thoughtful. They want us to listen. They want us to be empathic, non-judgmental, obviously to do no harm. We all made that commitment, right? And to be competent. So there's a lot of expectations that are going into this meeting, this, this primary care or specialty clinic meeting, okay? What patients need to learn and what I work with patients and provider on is that therapeutic relationship or working alliance or collaborative relationship, however you would like to talk, call it, is working together as a team. And this is not a new concept. This is not something I came up with. This is actually something that we learned in mental health field. Um, back in the 90s, um, you know, there were a lot of different psychotherapies out there and, you know, there were behaviorists who thought they were the best and there were psychodynamic therapists who thought they were the best and uh, there was a lot of studies that came out and what the studies found was that it really didn't matter what type of therapy was being conducted, it was the therapeutic relationship that was the strongest predictor of outcome. And here's the secret, it's no different in pain medicine. Um, and this is strong, uh, validated by strong research support. So we know that patients that have rewarding relationships have better outcomes. We also know that they're less likely to seek assistance from other sources. So when patients come into my pain clinic, I tell them right off the bat, I probably don't know everything. Because you've been to several different providers and we haven't talked to them. So I'm going to have to ask you what your history is, where you've been, what you've been told and we'll try to do the best we can to communicate with them. Um, and that will kind of be less likely the case if that person feels that they can trust me, if we have a relationship and I have their best interest in mind. This reduces the risk of conflicting treatment plans and it also reduced, uh, reduced risk for further confusion. So again, there's this heightened interest in pain management and it underlines the need for appropriate boundary setting. Dr. Boos, who was just here a minute ago, started talking about setting boundaries with ourself. That's hard with ourself. Now I'm talking about setting boundaries with another individual, another human being that's even harder. Um, but we need it. We need it in the field of pain management. We also need to be consistent in our message. You know, I work in an interdisciplinary uh, pain management clinic and we have, you know, anesthesiologists, we have physicians, we have an osteopath, we have pharmacists. We have psychologists, um, and everybody in the team, doesn't matter who the patient meets with, has the same message. Doesn't matter who they speak with, right? Nursing, don't want to forget nursing. 
Um, so that's important because patients once sometimes will come in and they'll try to get you to say something different than the other person said, right? But we got them. We, we're on the same page. All right. So the gentle art of saying no. Sometimes what the patient wants is not what is in their best interest, right? And saying no is the therapy. You're not rejecting them. What you're doing is you're redirecting them to something different, right? So I'll give you a case example. I had a returning veteran. He must have been in his late 20s. He had recently moved to Chicago, and he came in, and he wanted to have his prescription refilled for his opiates. So I saw that he was coming in. I saw that this potentially might be a difficult case. Met with the primary care person, and together we met with the patient. We discussed with him the risk and how they outweighed the benefits in terms of his case. And he did exactly what I mentioned before. He was doing this. Right? He was understanding. He was nodding. I was like, this is going great. Right? He left the office. We didn't refill the prescription. We gave him an opioid taper plan. He left the office. About three hours later, I get a phone call from his primary mental health therapist who began yelling at me for about 15 minutes about how I wasn't addressing his pain management and how we had done him a disservice. And at that point, I needed to educate the provider. And so I talked to the provider very calmly and said, you know, this is our message. This is the, what the research shows. This is why we reached the conclusion we did. They understood. And I said, what would really be helpful now is when you meet with the patient, or if you are meeting with the patient right now, because the patient was sitting right next to them, I need you to be consistent in your message. And he was. That's not the interesting part of the story. What was, what's interesting is that the patient eventually moved to another state. And so I never found out what happened to him until a couple of years ago. I was at a concert of all places. And I'm sitting there with my friend, and I, hear, I feel a tap on my shoulder, and I look over, and it's a security person. I'm like, what did I do? I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> and it was him. And he's like, hey, it's me. Do you remember? And I said, of course I remember. And he said, um, thank you. And I said, for, for what? And he said, because you were able to tell me no when I couldn't tell it to myself. It was because I had said no, or not me, but we together had said no to him, that he was able to stop, right, find other ways of treatment, and actually now was employed. And then he was like, oh, let's have a beer. And I was like, no, we can't do that. <laughs> All right. So this uh, image right here on the right, on your right-hand side, is a front-page cover of the American Chronic Pain Association newsletter. This is a newsletter that is sent out every month. The American Chronic Pain Association is the association of patients who suffer from chronic pain. These are not providers. These are patients who have chronic pain who come up with this uh, information. Um, and I think that's really great, because if patients can teach other patients, I think that that message is louder than when it comes from a provider. So I thought it was really interesting that on the front page of their newsletter, it says communications can bridge the gap. And that's underlining the importance of this relationship that I keep talking about, right? Communication is the most important skill in that relationship, um, but we don't necessarily always put a lot of effort, or maybe we don't know what skills are needed in order to have a good communication with our patients. So there's five essential components. One is to first really listen. Really listen to what the patient is telling you. They will tell you in the matter of a couple of minutes what they need, 
and what they want and what they want it for, right? And from that information, you can glean what exactly it is that you can do for them. Express empathy, and this is not talking to them about you being in pain or you giving them a story about another patient who had pain. This is sitting with them and, and seeing their life from their perspective. Like I said before, some of these patients that I work with, they have a hard time getting to my appointments, so understanding and seeing that journey they had to get to just to meet with me, right? That's expressing empathy. Being concise, so again, you don't want to be long-winded, talking all the time. Ask questions and reflect, not only in the information that they are giving you, but the feeling that they're giving you or the struggle that they are going through. And then finally, watch your body language. So Dr. Boos was just saying this a minute ago that, you know, in some of our offices, it's set up where there's a computer or a desk between you and the patient. What does that communicate? What does this communicate? I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk to you, right? So being open, right? Opening your stance, opening the way that you're speaking, making sure you're making eye contact, all those pieces of information are important. When it comes to providers, we don't go through a lot of communication training, right? And this is a skill that requires a lot of practice and a lot of thought. Um, so um, there's essential elements to having a healthy relationship, not only having compassion, but clear expectations or established boundaries, providing giving, uh, us giving them adequate explanations, the patient being an active participant, it amazes me how many patients still approach me with an, uh, an acute kind of pain perspective. They come to me thinking that, okay, I'm just here. You do what you need to do. What? I I'm confused. Hold on for a minute. <laughs> we need to talk, right? I need to educate you on how it's not like that when you have chronic pain, how we both need to be working together, how you have a very active role in your, your care and your treatment. Um, and the patient being part of that decision-making process, right? What is the patient willing to do? What are they excited about? That's where you need to go, okay? So boundary setting. So what are boundaries? Boundaries are simple rules or limits. They're created by individuals, so that's everybody here. We're all individuals. Identify reasonable, safe, and permissible ways for others to behave around them, and they determine how they respond when someone oversteps those boundaries. And pain management requires appropriate boundaries, and it's hard for us to kind of guess who we're going to need to use those boundaries with. So here's the hint. Start off with every patient. I don't find that it's hard to do this with a new patient. I find it very difficult when I inherit one or when a patient is referred to me or they are changing their care. Then it becomes a little harder. But I'm the new person, so it's pretty easy. Right? I'm a new person. I don't know who this is, so it's, I'm going to start all over again. Hi, I'm David, and this is what we're doing, right? Um, but it is harder when you have those different cases. So I want you to ask yourself the following questions. So here's a list of questions. I want you to go through and kind of think if you have difficulties in any of these different areas. Right? How many of us have difficulties in these areas, either professionally or personally? Everybody, right? We all have this. Okay. So like I said, why is it so difficult? It's because this requires thought and practice, and we learn little about this in our clinical training. And again, this is a skill that we need to master. So first thing we need to know, or first thing that we need to tell ourselves is boundaries are not threats. I am not threatening anybody here. I'm just setting some limits. This is not an attempt to control anyone. People have a right to make decisions, but they also have consequences to the decisions that they make, right? And then uh, setting limits improves relationships. So the research shows 
that when you have clear expectations and the patient understands where they're coming from, you will have a better relationship. Better relationship improves outcome. So there's four steps. Really easy. Name, express, decide, maybe not that easy, and validate, right? So the first question I've been getting from people is, is where did you come up with this? I did not come up with this. This is a standard way of, of setting boundaries. Where this started for, for myself was when providers, uh, our nursing staff, our trainees, our residents, uh, other psychologists, other providers were coming to me with complaints about patients being inappropriate with them or other providers being inappropriate with them. And so what we know is that if you are sitting with a patient or you're talking with a provider and they make a sexual advance, right, what do we usually do? We say, oh, no, 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 no don't do that, right? Does that stop? Probably not. It doesn't work. What does work is when we say, hey, you just did that and it made me uncomfortable. And if you do that again, this is what's going to happen to you. And that's no different than this model, right? I named, hey, this is not inappropriate, right? Express, this is what you did that made me uncomfortable. Decide what it is I'm going to do if you keep doing it. And then validate. Validate is the one that we skip all the time. Um, and this is an important step because it kind of makes us realize how important it is to establish these boundaries. And how do we do that? We can get validation from our peers. We can get validation from other individuals that are around us, right? From research. So what are the four steps? Name or describe the behavior that is not acceptable to you. Express what you need or expect from the other person. Decide what you will do if he or she does not comply and respect with the boundaries you've established, and validate. Validate your reactions by recognizing that setting boundaries is important and that you have right to. And Dr. Booth said that also uh, right before I started, how important it is for us to recognize that we have rights as well. Boundaries are not comfortable. Actually, when I called this the gentle art, there's nothing gentle about it. It's very, actually very difficult, right? Um, Providers feel uncomfortable with this process um, because they feel that they're putting some limits on people. And then it kind of becomes even more complicated when you set the limit and someone pushes that line, right? And then that's when it becomes really uncomfortable. Um, you want to review what kind of conduct is expected from the patient. You want to maintain the boundary. Review the precise actions that you can expect from the staff or from yourself. Be consistent with your message. Remembering step four is very important, and that no may be the appropriate treatment. So here are some guidelines for boundary setting. Number one, establish your boundaries or restrictions early on. So the first question I get from people is, is well, what if I'm working with the same population? Like, how do I do it? Next time they come in, you say, hey, we've made some great changes. This is going to improve your pain management. Let me walk you through what we've done. Start new. Start fresh. This is what you're going to start doing. Number two, be consistent. Don't say you're going to do something, and then two minutes later, don't do it, right? This is like raising a child sometimes. I hate saying that, but it, but it does feel that way, right? If I say, Kyler, don't do that, or you're, not going to, you're going to get time out, and Kyler keeps doing it, and I give him no time out, is Kyler going to keep doing it? 
Yeah, it's the same, right? Uh, document. So I'm one of those providers who love documentation. Documentation has saved me many times. Um, I document everything I say, not everything, but basically outline the things that I went over with the patient, the steps that I took, because if something negative were to happen and someone comes behind me and says, what did you do? It's all there, right? It's all in the documentation. So documentation will be your friend. Use policy and procedures as backup, right? If your clinic that you work with, or the, the institution you work with, has a policy and procedure or an opioid agreements, you can say, this is policy, this is procedure, I have to do this with you. So you use it as backup. Review that opioid pain agreement. Opioid pain agreements is hopefully something you'll hear more about while you're here during the week. Um, they are very helpful because they will outline what behaviors are acceptable to you, but it is also very helpful for the patient to know what they should expect from you. Um, and then use other tools that are available to you. All right, so some people will ask me, what are those other tools? So the first thing is pain education. Uh, we at the Jesse Brown VA have a pain education school program. It's actually something I developed after coming to Pain Week. Um, and it is an education program where we teach all patients who have chronic pain throughout the hospital system about all the different types of treatment that we have available for pain management. The reason is, is because when they find out about all the stuff we've got, trust me, they'll get excited about something. And if they're looking at this thing that they're excited about, what are they not looking at? Right? Okay. Use random urine tox screens. You're probably going to hear about that during the week as well. State prescription drug monitoring database. We um, go in there and we see if the patient is receiving uh, opioids or any other controlled substances through the uh, state systems. Now, here's the interesting thing. Chicago is actually located on the eastmost side of Illinois. East, east northeastmost side of, yeah. And we are right by uh, Wisconsin, and where we are right by uh, Indiana, and we're right by Michigan. Well, people travel, especially for, for you know, healthcare. And so if I only look at the Illinois state prescription drug monitoring, I may not find anything. Interestingly enough, if I go on the Indiana or the Michigan or uh, Milwaukee one or Wisconsin one, sometimes you will find. Again, the patients who have chronic pain go to different places for their care. So again, what you're trying to do is get a full idea of where they're getting their medications from. Opioid risk tools. I'm pretty impartial with the SOAP. Um, it's 14 questions. It asks about behaviors that are not necessarily clearly looking at their opioid use, and they will give you an indication whether this person needs to be followed a little bit closer in terms of their opioid uh, risk. Um, good tool. And then you can use a decision tree. So when you look at decision trees, usually um, in different systems, they're like four or five pages long. Um, I made like a one-page really simple one, and I'll actually be going over that at the next talk in a couple hours. So how do I handle patient refusals? What if the patient refuses what I say or doesn't like what I say? Well, they have a right to that. That's their decision. But they also have to understand with the choice that they've made that there are consequences to those choices. We are not obligated to provide opiates. We are obligated to provide pain management care. Um, 
we are obligated, oh, I said that, okay. Goals are to maximize safety and minimize risk for patient, but also for the community at large. And you should avoid making decisions based on emotions. I have some providers who I've been working with for a very long time, who someone comes in, the thing I hate, I'm sorry, the thing I hate to hear is when a doctor comes in or another provider comes in and says, this person's a very nice person. <laughs> and how does that have to do with anything? Right? Or this person is 80 years old, and that doesn't tell me anything. How did they, what did their urine tox screen say? How did they score on the opioid risk tool? Have they been taking their medications? Have they been arrested lately for something opioid related? That's important information, not this is a very nice person. They're all a nice person. Everybody is a nice person. Um, so again, taking emotions out of the equation and using the objective data. So, um, I'm going to show you a video clip. This is from a popular TV show called Atlanta Plastic. How many of you guys know about that? It's my guilty pleasure. I just shared something very personal with you. Um, I love this show. Um, and when I saw this episode come up, I kind of freaked out and got up and recorded it. And I was like, I'm going to use this at Pain Week. Um, what I like about it is you will see all four steps represented. It may be a little rough but they're represented, and I want you to pay attention to two things. First, I want you to pay attention to how the patient is reacting to the news that she's not going to get the surgery she wants. Then I want you to see what the provider does with her reaction, okay? But you get the point. The patient wasn't happy, was she? So what the provider said, said, I'm sorry, right? But this is the decision that I made with the information that I had. This is what I am expecting from you. When she started giving her a little bit of an attitude, she's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You realize this is a relationship, and it's fragile. And if you don't follow my instructions, that really doesn't make me feel confident on continuing the surgery, right? And then you saw the patient change, right? Okay. We don't need to do that. That's an extreme example. But I thought you would enjoy that. All right, so I wanted to go over some case examples of some common problems or cases that will show up into your clinic and then I want to use this model of name, express, decide, and validate, all right? So patient, uh, patient presents to your clinic with increasing pain complaints and requests for dose increases while decreasing activity. And there's no indication so far that the opioid trial has been helpful, okay? So can you guys see a problem with this? Yes. What's the problem? Don't look at the answer. <laughs> Say it again. Decrease function and increase medication, right? That's the problem. So we're naming the problem. They're requesting a dose escalation. As at the same time, they're telling me they're not moving around. I'm going to express to them what the role of medications are and what the role of physical therapy and what the role is of injections and what the role of all these different types of treatment are. That is to help the patient become more physically active because the movement is the therapy. If they are not moving, they are not going to see any improvement. Right? So explaining to them that these treatments are to help them move more. And if you're telling me you're not moving, is it doing its job? No. So if it's not doing its job, then what is the point of continuing this opioid trial? Because the risk, we already know, outweighs the benefits. Right? So I'm going to tell them what my decision is. I'm going to titrate down these medications if what you're telling me is you're not going to increase 
your activity level. And I'm going to feel validated because what? I'm going to send them to the physical therapist and see if they need an assessment or see if they can benefit from uh, therapy. Everybody see that? Okay. Case study number two. Patient comes to your clinic as a walk-in and is reporting that their medications have been lost or stolen or dumped in the toilet or fell off the roof of their car. So no one here has had this happen? <laughs> All right. So first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about what is the unacceptable behavior. First, they came in as a walk-in. One of the things that I talk about with our chronic pain patients is this chronic pain is not a walk-in clinic concern. It is not. Now, if you have an acute pain condition, if something new or something has changed, then yes. But you, we are not a walk-in clinic for chronic pain management. That's not what we do, number one. Number two, on our opioid agreement, one of the things that we go over is lost and stolen medications. And on there, it specifically says, we will not refill your medications unless we have a police report. And we will only allow that once. Now, people are shaking their head. Are you shaking it because you can't see yourself doing that or because? <laughs> so some people don't even replace it. I'm nice. I'm, I give them one. I give them one. We give them one chance. Um, so some people don't even give them that chance. Good for you. I give them one chance. But what typically happens is they come in with no report, right? Or someone said it fell on the toilet, and another person said, it, I said, it fell off the roof of their car. That has happened. Um, and there's no police report for that. So I'm not going to refill it, right? Uh, so I'm going to express to the patient their shared responsibility. You know, this is different than the patient who comes in. I had a very elderly man come in the other day who was telling me that he knows his nephew is stealing his medications. And so I said to him, I said, sir, there's two things we can do here. Number one, we stop prescribing these medications because you're also complaining of cognitive issues. You're also complaining the sedation. You're also complaining of the constipation. Doesn't sound like a very fun thing for you. Or the other option you have is to buy a lock, a security lock, or a safe where you would put your medication. Well, I'm not going to do that. So then that leaves us with <laughs> option number one, right? So we decided not to refill without the police report. And then we validated this because we looked in the local newspaper. And this person was on there. Not for stolen opioids, but for something related. Um, and then we also looked at the prescription drug monitoring and found that he was getting medications from other states. Again, the information that you gather will help you. So when I wrote this note, I wrote exactly what happened. Came in, no police report, looked at the newspaper. This is what the newspaper said. This is what the state prescription. This is the decision that I made. Pretty kind of solid, right? Patient urgently calls you with increased pain and then shows up to your clinic for an unscheduled appointment, asking for an early refill. Has this happened? All right. So what's the problem? They've showed up for an unscheduled appointment. 
and they're reporting increased pain, right? So there's a concern there. If it's increased pain, do they have an acute condition? This is an exacerbation of their chronic pain. What is going on here? So I've got to figure that out, or not me, the physician has to figure that out, right? Um, but let's say it is an emergent situation, then I'm going to send them to the emergency room or to urgent care. Again, the consistency of message. We are not an emergency clinic. We are not an acute clinic. We're a chronic pain clinic, right? So urgent care or emergency room. We also tell the patient that unscheduled appointments are not okay. And the reason why it's not okay is because I can't give you my full attention. I can't really get to the bottom of what really is going on. It is unfair to you. <laughs> For me to meet you on an unscheduled appointment, not only to you, but everybody else who's waiting in the waiting room. So you know what? Let's schedule an appointment in the next couple of days. Full appointment. We'll go over this. We'll figure out what we're going to do. But right now, we're not going to do any dose escalations. Not in an unscheduled appointment. Again, see how I turned that into a bad to a good? Right, right. Patients deserve to have a full visit. All right. Case study number four. You ordered a urine, uh, urine drug screen in the patient's last visit, and it comes back negative for a substance you're prescribing or positive for a substance you didn't prescribe or both. Okay? So what is the behavior that's unwanted here? There's something showing up that shouldn't, right? All right, so you're not following the prescription or you're using some illicit substances. I'm worried. Why aren't you showing up for your medications if you are taking them? You're telling me you're taking them. Why not? What's going on? Or I see that you're showing up positive for cocaine. What, what happened? What's, what's going on? I've learned in my very short career that if I act dumb, I get a lot of information. I don't understand what's going on. I'm really, I'm really concerned. Okay. Express your concern about the patient's safety, but also the community safety. You know, sometimes you can pull at their heartstring on the fact that these are dangerous medications and that they're out there and that maybe their granddaughter or grandson or daughter or son could get access to these medications and how dangerous that is. You can use that. Decide, well, we're going to do another urine talk screen. How many people do that? Okay, how many people don't do that? One, one, one drop and you're done. Okay. We do, we do another one. We give them another chance. We, get, we do another one. But if they are a repeat offender, then we do not continue the medications, right? Um, and then again, I'm validated by this because this is a risk to diversion. They may be sharing their medications. They may be escalating the medication on their own without any supervision. Case study number five. Patients upset. And they're making suicidal, homicidal threats. And this is only after they've been told they're not getting their opiates. <laughs> How many of you have had this? All right. Not uncommon. Good. Or not good. Bad. Bad that's uncommon. But All right. So you can relate to this, right? So the patient is making suicidal, homicidal threats. That's serious. That's very serious. And so when that occurs, I sit down with the patient, not because I'm the psychologist, because I'm a provider, and I tell them how serious that is. And I make sure that that is actually what they're trying to communicate. Nine out of ten times, they'll be like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm communicating. And then I express how today we will let it fly, but the next time that that's done, this is what's going to happen. 
and they, they discontinue that behavior. Again, I'm naming, even with my expression, I'm doing the naming, expressing, and the validating, right? Decide. So I tell them the concerns I have about them. I could have concerns about the provider, myself, or the provider they're meeting with. And I talk about the concerns within the community at large. Um, and then I decide to either call the police for backup or I send this patient to the emergency room or I refer them to a mental health therapist caseworker to meet with them on a more regular basis. Um, and again, I consult, I debrief with the providers involved, I find support within my staff to kind of talk. This is, this is kind of heavy, right? This is a hard one. Not if what? Not if you want to keep practicing medicine. You take them to the emergency, right, right. The, the other thing is, is if you're by yourself and you don't have staff, right, then yes, you absolutely call the police and send them. You don't play around, right? Some people have the luxury of having multiple providers, and so if, if someone's there, they can kind of go in and, and diffuse the situation, right? But you're absolutely right. If a patient makes a suicidal homicidal threat, it's over, right? If you're practicing by yourself, and that's because, again, the patient's safety is most important, right? Case study number six. Patient comes to your visit appearing intoxicated, somnolent, over-medicated. They continue to report that their opiates, that they're taking their opiates as prescribed. So again, this is where the dumb part comes in. My God, you look really exhausted. Why? Or, wow, you look really sleepy. Did you not sleep last night? What's going on? Or, um, did you drink something before coming over here? Like, what's going on? So again, I, but I have a, notice I have a relationship with them where I can kind of play like that, and then they'll be like, oh, Dr. Kosi, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. Or yeah, I just drank a pint of something, right? And I'll be like, oh, okay, that's not good. All right, so again, what is the behavior that's unwanted? Potentially, potentially the patient may be abusing the medications or using illicit substances. So how am I going to find that out? I'm going to probably ask for a urine tox screen. We probably are going to ask the patient to show us the medications that they have, because if they're showing up to the appointment, they should, should have some medications left over. And if they have medications left over, our pharmacist or one of the other providers will meet with them, count the pills, and see if they're on the right track. Um, speak to family members or someone who brought them to the appointment and ask them with their permission, obviously. And then again, the concerns for the patient, the concerns about the community. And then we're going to consult with addiction services in, in, in the case that this is an overuse or abuse of an illicit substance, or we're going to refer to the emergency room. Say again? Oh, the state prescription, yeah. You would, you would use the tools that you have available. You could also do the opioid risk assessment tool, right? All right, that is the last one. There are references at the end. Any questions? Yes. Yes, the answer is yes. Uh, the, the question is, is, do I often use scripts with other providers on how to get the, the other resources uh, that are available to, available to the patient, including mental health? I do, but I don't like it because a script can be lost or thrown around. And so what I try to do is I try to set them up do training where they're with another provider and they kind of act like one is the patient, the other one's a provider, and kind of train them that way. 
um, kind of encouraging them to make mistakes, encouraging them to try things on, maybe things that are not even comfortable. But I don't like handing out scripts. I don't think that that's the solution. Any other questions? All right, thank you very much for coming. <laughs>